Welcome to News for CHROs, This Week in HR Policy, brought to you by HR Policy Association, the premier group for chief human resource officers and senior HR executives at multinational and U.S. employers. My name is Henry Eichelberg, and I'm the chief operating officer of the association, and this podcast will provide listeners with every single significant human resources, public policy, and key best practice development each week. Welcome to This Week in HR Policy for the week of October 27th, 2023. For this week's stories, we have first a recap of a membership webinar HR Policy Global hosted this week on managing employee safety and crisis management in the Israeli and Hamas conflict. HR Policy's Greg Hoff updates us on the NLRB's final joint employer rule, which unsurprisingly, is even worse than the proposed rule. We also recap our webinar this week where we had CHROs and legal experts talking about the impacts of the Harvard decision on corporate DEI programs. HR Policy's Shatrain Burbel writes a little primer on House Speaker Mike Johnson and what that might mean for public companies. We also detail a new or a very likely to become new pay transparency law from the state of Massachusetts and we review the results of a KPMG Global CEO survey, which covered geopolitics, ESG, AI, and return to work. First up this week, we have members discuss employee safety crisis management amid the Israel-Hamas conflict. HR Policy Global this week facilitated a discussion for members on employee safety and business continuity in Israel and how to create a safe and inclusive work environment for diverse workforces around the world in such a time conflict. Orly Gerby, a partner at Hezrog Fox and Neiman in Tel Aviv, provided key information on how to prepare for and respond to volatile situations like the one we have in Israel. Employee safety is definitely a top concern. Ensuring employee safety and business continuity is crucial for organizations and multinationals during a time of conflict. Employers can support employees in several ways, including by participating in employee relocation programs based on government's recommendations. Some companies support the relocation of their employees to safer regions in Israel by allowing emergency allowances, temporary housing, or other forms of assistance. Second, transferring expat assignments back to their home countries or elsewhere. However, employees should approach this with sensitivity if they want to relocate Israeli employees to another country. Third, staying connected with employees in Israel to understand their personal needs and keep leadership unified. Even if employees are not directly involved in military service, their family and friends may be, and extra support may be needed. Fourth, offering options for remote work if commuting is a concern, as maintaining a work routine can contribute positively to employee mental health. Ms. Gerby recommended that employees utilize their HRIS systems to monitor payments and absences and communicate work expectations clearly during this period. There's also an increasing company focus on labor and employment issues in Israel. Employers are advised against terminating employees while emergency measures are in place or when childcare is required. Second, employers should support employees who are summoned for military service under Israeli law. These employees have the right to retain their jobs and receive their salaries during their service, 
and for the 30 days following. Third, given the unprecedented trauma experienced by employees in Israel, it's crucial for employers to express care, extend insurance coverage to include mental health, and provide a space for mourning and sharing. Fourth, for Israeli employees abroad who wish to return to Israel for military service, it is at the employer's discretion whether they continue to pay that employee, according to Ms. Gerby. On the topic of crisis management and business continuity, some companies are proactively relocating key personnel to neighboring countries to prepare for worst-case scenarios. On the call, members discussed strategies such as mapping project progress and employee capacity in Israel, identifying critical projects, and leveraging teams outside the country. Employers must decide how to address diverse opinions and communicate effectively. Companies should uphold their core values and codes of conduct, ensure equal treatment of all employees, and equal application of codes of conduct. Utilize internal and external resources and foster safe and inclusive environments. Next, we have the NLRB issues final joint employer rule, which was even worse than the proposed rule and will become effective on December 26th. So Merry Christmas. Uh, This week, the National Labor Relations Board issued its final rule on joint employer status under federal labor law with significant implications for all large employers. The unprecedentedly broad rule could make companies liable for labor law violations of third parties with which they do business and create collective bargaining obligations for the same. The final rule establishes that a company may be a joint employer if it shares or co-determines one or more essential terms and conditions of employment of the employees of a third party with which it does business. Such terms are defined exclusively as, first, wages, benefits, and other compensation. Second, hours of work and scheduling. Third, the assigned duties to be performed. Fourth, the supervision of the performance of the duties. Fifth, work rules and directions governing the manner, means, and methods of the performance of the duties and the grounds for discipline. Sixth, the tenure of employment, including hiring and discharge. And finally, the working conditions related to the safety and health of employees. This last bullet was not in the proposed rule and is a new addition, including working conditions related to the safety and health of employees, broadly expands the scope of the rule. Minimum safety standards are common in most third-party business relationships. Notably, per the rule, a company does not need to actually exercise control over any of the terms and conditions, nor does such control need to be direct for a joint employer relationship to exist. Essentially, as long as a company could have some semblance of control over one or more of the above conditions, they could be considered a joint employer under the new rule. This is not just a franchise issue either. While joint employer liability is most often associated with the franchise industry, the board's final rule has significant negative implications for all employers. Most, if not all, large employers establish minimum standards through their company's business and supply chain for quality and safety purposes, among other reasons. Such standard setting could now result in liability for labor law violations of third parties. Further, such liability could also force companies to deal with the unions of such third parties, including engaging in collective bargaining for workers who are not the employees of the company. 
A little bit of background here. The joint employer issue is perhaps the chief example of the policy tug of war occurring at the NLRB over the last decade, with three consecutive boards issuing different rules on joint employer status under federal labor law. The current board issued a proposed rule in 2022 after rescinding a Trump board rule that narrowed joint employer liability. The association submitted comments in opposition to the proposed rule, arguing that it inappropriately expanded joint employer liability and disincentivized employees from setting standards for parties with which they do business. So what's the outlook here? The final rule will become effective December 26, 2023, although a legal challenge is likely. Employers should take steps now to review their relationships with third parties and minimize, as much as possible, the scope of such relationships to the extent that they touch upon the working conditions of the employees of those third parties. Next, we have HR leaders examine the latest implications of the Harvard decision on corporate DEI programs by HR Policy's Greg Hoff. This week, a panel of CHROs and legal experts provided insights and analysis on the latest implications of the Supreme Court's Harvard decision on corporate DEI programs in an HR Policy Association webinar. The discussion centered first on the increased legal risks. Mr. David Fortney of Fortney and Scott provided an overview of the current post-Harvard legal landscape, including the spate of new lawsuits targeting corporate DEI initiatives, as well as conflicting letters sent from various state's attorney general's offices, some warning firms of unlawful DEI practices, while others supporting those same practices. Mr. Fortney and other panelists noted that legal challenges are materializing through several different avenues, including lawsuits under Title VII and Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, as well as shareholder derivative suits. The CHRO panelists, including Ms. Jackie Welch, the EVP and CHRO of the New York Times, Michelle O'Hara, the EVP and CHRO of SAIC, and Mr. Tim Horgan, the EVP and CHRO of Home Depot, emphasized the importance of remaining committed to diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and in particular, at the management level, given the need for more progress. Despite the potentially increased risk, panelists note that the current moment provides an opportunity to double down and reaffirm commitment to DEI practices, while acknowledging the importance of internal and external reviews to ensure that such practices are fully compliant with the law. During the discussion, Ms. O'Hara shared the importance of communicating the why of DEI programs to employees to ensure that no group feels ostracized or left behind. Ms. O'Hara noted that SAIC is focused on comprehensive communication plan to best articulate to employees why they are undertaking certain DEI practices and initiatives. Mr. Horrigan noted that unlike college admissions, employee-based diversity is not a net zero-sum game and that broadening the pipeline for talent does not mean excluding certain groups of people from the workforce over others. Leadership and mentorship, key for continued success in the DEI workspace. Panelists also shared the importance of getting buy-in from leadership for successful DEI outcomes, as well as how focused mentorship and sponsorship can accelerate growth of underrepresented groups within a company. Ms. Welch noted that at the New York Times, they are focusing on more sponsorship and specifically more advocacy for employees, as opposed to merely providing guidance and coaching. Next, we have Mike Johnson, a more conservative House Speaker, by HR Policy's Shatrain Burble. 
With all 220 Republicans present in support, Representative Mike Johnson, a conservative Republican from Louisiana, was elected the 56th Speaker of the U.S. House. Speaker Johnson is an ally of former President Donald Trump and supported overturning the election results of 2020. So what can we expect? Even as he vowed to seek common ground with Democrats, Speaker Johnson will face an intense test of his leadership in the weeks ahead and will need to navigate the challenges of leading a divided caucus and managing legislative priorities. What are those priorities? First, the federal government will run out of money on November 17th, and Congress must pass another short-term funding bill or budget deal to avoid a shutdown. If a short-term funding bill is needed, Johnson supports a bill to fund the government for up to five months, expiring on January 15th or April 15th. Second, Congress is also set to consider supplemental funding for national security concerns, including border security funding, assistance for Ukraine and Israel, and domestic policy goals. Third, Johnson will no doubt face the same challenge as ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy, including the difficult task of governing a fractious conference that includes conservative hardliners and members in swing states with the razor-thin majority. So what impact will this have on employers? It is not likely that Johnson will use his speakership to pursue social issues impacting employers, given the dynamics and political ideologies in the Republican caucus. However, examples of positions Johnson has previously taken include, first, Johnson supported the Supreme Court's Harvard decision on affirmative action and the Groff decision regarding religious accommodations in the workplace. Second, in the last Congress, Johnson introduced the Stop the Sexualization of Children Act of 2022, modeled after Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill, that would have prohibited discussions of sexual orientation and gender identity, as well as related subjects, at any institution that received federal funds. So what's next? Heading into the 2024 election cycle, Republicans and Johnson will prioritize efforts on demonstrating that their party can govern and will focus on swing states where President Biden's favorability is low. Democrats will capitalize on Johnson's position on LGBTQ issues and abortion on the campaign trail. Next, we have seven states now require pay transparency by HR Policy's Greg Hoff. Massachusetts is set to become the seventh state to require pay ranges and job postings and could also require employers to report pay data to the state. Meanwhile, Washington's pay transparency law has spurred a wave of class action litigation that highlights the increased legal risks associated with state pay transparency laws. On the growing patchwork of pay transparency laws, Massachusetts will join New York, California, Washington, Colorado, Illinois, and Hawaii as the states that require employers to provide salary information and job postings. So who's covered? Employers with 25 or more employees in the state of Massachusetts would be required to comply with the law. The text of the bill is silent on remote workers, so it is currently unclear whether such workers would count towards the 25 employee minimum or whether remote jobs that could be performed in Massachusetts would be covered by the law and require salary information to be posted. Pay data reporting is also on the table, as the bill would also require employers to provide the state with pay data reports. However, this requirement would only apply if the national EEOC resumes collection of pay data as well, something the commission is currently contemplating and is expected to undertake within the next year. The Massachusetts law, which still must be passed in unified form by both chambers, something that's nearly certain, only adds to the dizzying labyrinth of pay transparency obligations imposed on employers by several states. 
with potentially more on the horizon. A recent wave of class action lawsuits filed against employers under a similar law in Washington, which became effective this year, highlights the increased legal risk for employers. Such lawsuits have targeted employers for failing to provide pay ranges and job postings and could result in significant damages awards. So what's the outlook here? Pay transparency continues to be a hot issue at the state level, with several other states currently considering similar legislation, including New Jersey and South Carolina. It is likely that next year will bring a handful of new pay transparency laws. Meanwhile, action at the federal level remains unlikely in the near term. CEOs on geopolitics, ESG, AI, and return to work. A look at a recent KPMG survey by HR Policy's Margaret Faso. A recent KPMG survey of 1,300 global CEOs found that top executives are confronting various internal and external challenges as they attempt to strategize and lead their companies through tumultuous times. CEOs rank geopolitics and political uncertainty as the top risk to growing over the next three years followed by operational issues and emerging and disruptive technology. AI is being seen as a competitive advantage. Over 70% of global CEOs are investing in generative AI, citing increased profitability as the number one benefit to implementing generative AI within a company. ESG issues are seen as crucial to long-term corporate strategies. 69% of CEOs state they have fully embedded ESG into their business to create value and that they are taking a more outcomes-based approach to ESG. While CEOs reported they are still years away from seeing a return on this investment, 24% believe ESG will have the greatest impact on their relationship with customers. CEOs continue to signal a desire to return to pre-pandemic ways of work. Shocker. 64% of global CEOs predict a full return to in-office work within the next three years. Further demonstrating a shift in office working, almost 90% of respondents expressed an interest in linking financial reward and promotion opportunity to those working in office. Some argue that these types of incentives will hinder DEI efforts. The bottom line is that CEOs are focused on mitigating the risks of disruptive geopolitical events and reassessing their strategic priorities around AI, ESG, and talent. While CEOs reported strong confidence in a full return to office, the fact remains hybrid work has employee support and leaders should approach return to office plan with employee needs in mind. And that's it. Thanks for listening to News for CHROs This Week in HR Policy. I'm Henry Eichelberg with HR Policy Association, the premier trade association for chief human resource officers and senior HR executives. For more information about the association, visit our website at www.hrpolicy.org. And we'll see you next week for the next News for CHROs.